This is Bigger Questions, with Andrew Laird filling in for your regular host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the Melbourne CBD. I'm Andrew Laird, filling in for your usual host, Robert Martin. Today's big question is... Is there an even better story that films might provide a way into? And to help us think about all things film, we're joined today by Russ Matthews. Hello, Andrew. Russ is a film critic. He blogs regularly at Real Dialogue. And uh, with four children, we're guessing he's watched the odd film or two over the years. Just a few. <laughs> so would you please welcome Russ Matthews. Thanks. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. With four children in your house, is it true, fair to say that you've watched a lot of films over the years? Yes, our, our family is definitely one of those families that goes to the films on a regular basis. Okay. Now, I noticed a slight accent. Where did you grow up? <laughs> I, grew up, I, grew up I grew up in Western Sydney. No, I didn't. Um, um, I grew up in uh, North America in the United States in a state called Iowa. Most people don't know where that is. It's where everybody travels through or over when they're going to holiday, so we call it the holiday capital of the world. It's really farm country. Uh, it's really farm country area of the world, uh, but it is a great place to be able to grow up. All right. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about your childhood experience of movies okay, in, in just great. a moment. But just briefly, tell us what was a favorite film or two of when you were a child? It was interesting to con consider my, you know, my childhood because uh, film has been a part of my life pretty much from my longest memories I could think of. But I actually went to see in the theaters because this was before VHS and DVD and YouTube. For those of you out there who don't realize it, they, there was a time <laughs> when you just went to the theaters to actually go see the films. And uh, I saw E.T. Um, E.T. nine times. And I saw... At the cinema. At the cinema. Okay. Yep. And, uh, and then also I saw Star Wars over ten times in the cinema. Yep. Okay. Well, funny you should mention those two films. <laughs> okay. Um, to kick off bigger questions, one of the things we like to do is ask a couple of smaller questions. We like to have a bit of fun on the show. Sure. And so we're going to quiz Russ right now on one of his favourite films from childhood. That oh, is no. E.T. Oh, no. So two questions. <laughs> okay, two Let's questions. Let's see how you go. Okay. Question number one. Since its release in 1982, how much has E.T. grossed in US dollars? So A... 100 million, B, 436 million, C, 792 million, or D, in excess of $1 billion? I'm probably going to have to say, I'm going to go with the in excess of $1 billion. Okay. Yeah, that would be my guess. Very close, but the correct answer is actually C. Seven hundred ninety-two. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, seven hundred ninety-two million. All right. So the film was re-released in nineteen eighty-five and two thousand and two, uh, earning an extra sixty million and sixty-eight million, respectively, on amazing. those two releases. Amazing, amazing. And by that time, I think anyone who'd want to have seen it probably had already. <laughs> exactly. You go back and see it again. That's but right. Anyway, yeah. Okay. Question two. See, okay. if can, see if you can get this one right. All right. One point in the film, Elliot uses candy to form a trail to lure <laughs> ET. What type of candy does he use? Is it A, M&M's, B, Skittles, C, Junior Mints, or D, Reese's Pieces? Okay, well, you, my, my family's in the back just laughing because I love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, and so Reese's Pieces were actually introduced in that film, and so that was actually one of the greatest ploys as far as marketing, so they were able to get that introduced, so Reese's Pieces would actually have to be the answer there, Andrew. And you'd be correct. <laughs> <All right. laughs> now, you're, it's very interesting. Apparently, originally... 
M&Ms was going to be the candy used, but the story is that Mars, who make M&Ms, thought, oh, it's not going to be a worthwhile film, no point investing in that. So Reese's Pieces comes along, pays a million dollars to get their product in the film and to use E.T., and the rest, as they say, is history. Just brilliant, brilliant. Amazing how, again, an influence that film has on the world. Absolutely. That's right. So, Russ, in our E.T. quiz, you got one right, so you passed. <laughs> OK. Would you give Russ a hand? Feel <laughs> <laughs> a little nervous there. <laughs> Now, Russ, E.T., a childhood favourite film of yours. Yes. And you developed a love of film fairly on, early on in your life. Yeah. Tell us about your earliest childhood memories of going to the cinema. Who'd you go along with? Okay. One of the things that was interesting, I mean, Iowa is not one of those areas where you have a whole lot of things to do. I mean, cow tipping was introduced there. You know, <laughs> watching corn grow is kind of one of those things you did there. So one of the opportunities that we had as a family was to go along and go see the films. And we did that on a regular basis. The only thing is when you go to the films with my mother in particular, Dolores Matthews, one of the things you can't get away with is just kind of going and watching the film and that's it. So one of the valuable parts, and really kind of one of the things that's influenced my life throughout that, is that we go see the films, and we see everything. I mean, my, my parents took us to see Woody Allen films. We saw science fiction films. We saw everything. But when we were riding home in the car, Mom would turn to two boys, my brother and I, Mitch and I, and she would always say, so what would you think about the film? Now, don't just tell me you liked it yeah. or you didn't like it. You tell me what you liked about the film. And what was great about that is pretty much a half an hour ride back home was a whole conversation about the film, the impact that it had, and some of the things that it had to say. And so I think that's one of the key things of kind of looking at the bigger picture of the story. It was really a part of my, my childhood growing up, but also kind of influences mm. me even today. So your mother instilled that in you from a very early age. She did. Thanks, Mom. Yeah. Yep. Tell me, E.T., for example, what were some of the things in that film that really resonated and connected with you as a, as a kid to want to go and see it nine times? Well, I'll tell you the fact that the girl I was dating at the time wanted to go see it so many times. Okay. But, yeah, no, just joking. <laughs> but uh, really, I think there's two key things about E.T. in particular, and, and it's really something that you see all pervasive in most Steven Spielberg films, would be, and that was the director of the film, was uh, Hope was one that there was mm. there was something about this trying to achieve there was trying to get to something in particular trying to get home and seeing the value of home and the importance of home and if you've noticed through most of Steven Spielberg's films there's a lot of broken characters many times broken families so really the value of family still was there but then also a hope something for the future something to be achieved and a goal and a purpose and so I think that hope pervades that story and also hope is one of those things that I really take away from it even today mm. we might come back to some of those themes in a moment's time. Yeah. But these days you, you review films for work. I do, yeah. How many films would you watch each year on average? Oh, well, I've been asked this question, so I had to kind of go through and look at it because based on my blog and then also based on my children and all that they've had to endure with me over the years, I would probably say the number would settle right in between 150 to 200 films a year. Yeah, right. So you're yeah. watching at least a film maybe every second day. Yeah, there's about, that boils down to about two to three films a week. Yeah, okay. yeah, but but that you know that means I do enjoy them. I don't review all those films. There's some that I just kind of sit down and enjoy. I still enjoy those, but yeah, that's probably right right where the number sits. Okay, this may be a, a harder question for oh, someone no. who watches up to 200 oh, films a year. Here it comes. Everyone <laughs> loves their lists, though. So <laughs> they tell do us, love their lists. what would be your top five films of all time? Top five films. You know, I, I've been asked this question so many times, and I used to complain about it, but now I said, <laughs> you know what? Let's actually just go through and put together a list. And I did it based on my favorite genres. You know, so 
also looking at key genres throughout history. Mm-hmm. To Kill a Mockingbird is probably one of my favorite films of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if you wanted to go down to Alfred Hitchcock or even suspense thriller, Rear Window still has to be one of my favorite films of all time. Um, if animated, it was really a toss-up of uh, Pixar. It would be the, the Incredibles or Up. Okay. I um, mean, kind of looking at that. And then science fiction, Blade Runner, you can't go wrong with Blade Runner. Still a great film. I'm a little leery on them doing a sequel for it. Mm. I mean, actually, a, yeah, it is a sequel for it. And then finally, I probably would say one of the best films, and still ranked as one of IMDb's um, best films of all time, would be The Shawshank Redemption. So, okay. yeah, so those would be those would be the films, I mean, based on genre, though, I would probably list as being the best. It's a pretty good list. Yeah, yeah. And what, if you haven't seen them, I definitely, even though some of them are older, it would definitely be worthwhile. Some are in black and white, but that, that, that just even adds the value. I'd mm. go and check out those films they're worthwhile you mentioned before hope being a theme that you you appeal to you in et are there some other themes that in in some of those favorite films of yours that you mentioned there that that really have resonated and connected with you why you love them so much well, I think definitely one of the key things, especially as you get older in life, um, is the whole redemption component mm-hmm. of most of those films. And that if you look at these films and what they do, and most of the characters, they're flawed characters. The mm-hmm. reason why we like them is because they're flawed. But yet there's something about their story that they're kind of traveling through and they're trying to find some level of redemption. Mm-hmm. If it's with a relationship with their family, if it's a relationship with God, um, whatever. It is one of those opportunities, I think, where hope and redemption kind of pervade in most of those films. So there's hope for things to be better. Things to be better. I think think to be better that there's something beyond this, something beyond this life even sometimes that we look at, we can sometimes get down on this life and so sometimes you're looking for something more. Hmm. Yeah. I think we've made the case that you love films. I do. You're, you're an expert in this area. Oh, we can talk I don't know if I... Wow, <laughs> We can talk okay. to you about this. Okay, okay. But tell me, it's, not, it's obviously not just you who love films. No, um, no, no. We all, to varying sure. de- degrees, love films or stories. What is it about those words, once upon a time, that just really mm. resonate and connect with all of us? Why do we love stories so much? It really goes all the way back to the beginning of time. And that once upon a time grabs your attention, doesn't it? Mm. Maybe for newer audiences in a galaxy far, far away. You know, <laughs> you know the start of Star Wars. You know, or any of those films, they just grab your attention, regardless if it's a, of a Grimm's fairy tale or all the way down to a science fiction film. These films grab your attention because it's really we're wired that way because of who we were really made by as far mm. as our creator. And looking at the ultimate story, and I, I'm going to be pointing to the Bible mm. and say, how better can you get than in the beginning God? Mm. In the beginning God, which is really where we see in Genesis 1.1, where you can already go to John 1 and look at the beginning of the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mm. You kind of go, wow, what does that even mean? I mean, that's like, so intense, but yet we're wired for it. It grabs our attention, and we desire to kind of know something because it's not only do we love stories, but we're also what they say, the imago dei, I believe it's Latin, of the image bearers. Mm. We're the image bearers of God. And so that if the ultimate storyteller, being God, mm. tells the ultimate story, but yet he created us in looking at and bearing that image, and so that we are the image bearers ourselves, we not only want stories, but we want to tell stories. Mm. We want to be able to share our story. And how much better is it when we're able to share our story with other people? And so mm. it used to be the oral tradition the written tradition, but now I think we're in the visual tradition. You look at film, you look at YouTube. Why, why are there people that follow these people that just ride around on skateboards on YouTube? But they do. <laughs> 
because that is what our generation is about. And so why not be able to connect that with mm, people? Mm. Now, at the 2016 Melbourne Writers' Festival, one of the authors who appeared there was Yann Martel, okay. the author of uh, Life of Pi, uh, which has gone from book to film. Right. And Yann Martel, in that lecture that he gave, made this comment. He said, we are story animals. Mm. Stories can change us. Now, do you think that's true, that, that films, that stories have the power to change the way we think and act? Oh, definitely. I, I think that you can go in, and because you're in the dark and you're just captivated by this one film, that it can change you. But I was just the other night, I, was, I had an event, and I showed the 50 greatest lines ever given. Um, and it, it was just a two-minute clip, you know, it's just kind of going through, you can't handle the truth, you know, and all these different different lines. I'm watching all the men that were in the room, and they were mouthing these words because these had an impact on them. They could remember them. They used them. I don't know about you, but I, I use lines all the time in my life. And so the impact that it has, it may have a different impact than even the filmmakers had for mm. us, but I think that they do. They really convey and communicate a story, and they really tell us something about history. If mm. you just look through history, what we're able to see in film from from its inception to now, what it says about our culture, mm. what it says about it. I mean, that's why, why are there over 600 made in, in Hollywood, but then also in, it's not just Western culture, it's Eastern culture too. I mean, you're looking at all the different areas that are just, great films are being made. Just so you know, not all great films come out of Hollywood. There's great films coming out of Hong Kong, Bollywood, all over. They're just great films all over the world. Mm. Tell me, what are perhaps some films that have changed you, that changed, changed the way you think and the way you act? Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> oh. Okay. I'm going to just give you two. Okay? okay. I'm going to give you two, so I won't, I won't go through a really long, long list. One, I'm a runner. I still run every day. I absolutely love running. And so Chariots of Fire still rings true for me. I love that film. You hear the music, Vangelis, and you're going, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> you know, but, but it was not only that, it was Eric Liddell's story. And that he, how he really was able to not only serve God, but also serve the country that he loved. And there was something about the loyalty that he had to the country, but also first to God. And so I really love that. Actually, if you, when you get an opportunity, Hacksaw Ridge is a very similar film. Phenomenal film. Great story of Desmond Doss that you, you will have the same impact, except for it's a little gorier. Because <laughs> okay. it, it's a war film. The second film would be The Incredibles. Okay, The Incredibles. <laughs> How has that yeah, changed exactly. you? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I love the character. It's, it's one of the first films in a long time, especially animated films, that the father was really one of the key characters and was a very positive character. Mm. He loved his family. He went, after, he went for a time, he went for kind of selfish gain, but then he all of a sudden turned around and realized he couldn't lose his family. He loved his family. I just remember the scene when all of a sudden he's running through and he's talking with his wife and his wife is mad at him and he's going, I don't care what you say right now. I am just so happy to see you. It just really just resonates. I still see that. I still, I'm almost tearing up now. I can't believe this. But it's just one of those films that just shows the value of family. It shows the value of really looking at something beyond yourself. Mm. That you can't, you might be something more, but yet really what it comes down to is keeping th first things first. So you've touched on this, right. how films can give us a vision for how things could be, yeah. how things could be better, how they could give us hope. Um, but do films solve all of our problems? Or am I the only one mm. who, when they end, I sort of think, oh, but what about the next day? Oh, oh okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> exactly. But doesn't everybody kind of do that, especially when you see that infamous to be continued? You're like, what? 
what? No, you've got to be kidding me. And uh, it's one of the biggest challenges. I, I call it, I was doing a study and looking through it and on uh, the sequel paradox, mm. as it mm. was. And, you know, because people, most people want to go see sequels. But interestingly enough, the vast majority of big blockbuster films are are the first film. Okay, sequels usually don't do as much. Some do, but most do not. But yet, they're a built-in audience. And so really what it comes down to is two key things, is that people desire something fresh, so when you want to go see a new film, but yet you still go through, hmm, I don't know, it's this director, do I like them or not? But there's something about the sequel. Why do, why do sequels still do well the first couple weeks that they're out? Is because it's familiar. Mm. It gives us a story. It gives us that next thing. Now, most people are disappointed with it because why? Well, because you've already worked out in your own mind what has happened with this character already. And so you're going, what? Uh, that, that's not how I wanted it. That, that's not how it was supposed to go. That's really quite disappointing. But I think that it still gives us something familiar, something that we know. We know the formula is going to be there. And so we look for the fresh, but we really want the familiar. And so that's why I still think, I mean, studios not to do sequels on hit films are almost foolish because they have a built-in audience, even if everybody's disappointed with them in the end. So there's that aspect of sequels, but perhaps also do they appeal because we're still hoping that there might be a better story for these people? Oh yeah, I, I think that there's always a looking for the next thing, because even with the stories what we have in Jesus' story, even in the Bible, you know, he, he tells stories, but everybody wants to know what the next thing is, what's happening next. I really think that there's a wiring for us to desire story, but also there's a, a wiring and a desire to know something more. What's the next thing? Does this life have a purpose? Or does my life have a purpose that even can go beyond this life? Mm. Mm. So you've touched on this already, that um, your life obviously revolves around a particular story, mm. uh, the Christian story. Right. Uh, tell us your once upon a time. Okay. How did you become a Christian? <laughs> All right. Well, just quickly, it's, it is the most important story in my life. Mm. I, mean, I love my family. I love so many other things. But really, it's that time when I actually became a Christian that is the most important thing for me. And it's... Fascinating, because I grew up in a, a Christian home, or a church-going home, mm-hmm. and so I kind of thought I was a Christian, I went through the whole dunking process, and I did the, all that, <laughs> because it was, kind of, it was kind of cool, because all the other 11-year-olds were doing it at that time. But then all of a sudden, there was one time where I was at a youth event, where a man actually went through and explained, he was a pastor, went through and explained who I was, as far as somebody who is a sinner, which no one had ever told me that before, I always thought I was good. I was a good kid, didn't smoke, didn't drink, ran. I did, you know, all, all things, most of the things my mom and dad wanted me to do. I was really mm. typically good kid. But then for said, hey, but no, is that I'm a sinner. And it doesn't matter all the different things that I do. But really, it comes down to Jesus and what he's done for us. Mm. And that the only way for us to have a relationship with God was through him. And so it was at that point that actually I became a follower of Jesus. And, uh, and I, to this day, still running forward. I have my ups, I have my downs. Mm. But it definitely is one of those things that keeps me going. It's one of the reasons I do what I do. I mean, even the fact that I'm able to do film reviews mm. and point to Jesus through those, it, what an exciting opportunity as far as a, kind of a crossing over of two lines, as it were. Mm. Mm. Now, there's one particular story from Jesus' life that especially, you say, um, captivates you. Right. It's got all the drama and emotion of uh, any Hollywood blockbuster. <laughs> so it's, it's the story of Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who has just died. Now, tell us the story, Russ. What's happening in this part of the Bible? Well, it's a story. Of, it's definitely about friendship. It's a story of faith. 
And also it's a story of final things. So there's three things that you can kind of gain from it. And what's great is that there's a backstory that kind of goes along with it. So the, these are friends of Jesus. The, these, this is Lazarus, but also Mary and Martha, which if you know the stories at all, um, these are the siblings that were close with Jesus. And they were considered by Jesus to be loved. They're one of the few people in the Bible that actually is spoken of specifically that Jesus loved them. He loved hanging out with them. He loved being mm. with them. And so all of a sudden, he gets a message. He and his disciples were in a different town, and they get a message that says that his friend, Lazarus, has died. He's like, what? You know, and, but it takes a little bit of time. He decides not to go back immediately. He's actually, he was sick. He was going to die, and then he did end up dying. And so he shows up, and Lazarus is in what they considered a tomb, where they would have buried him. Hmm. And Mary and Martha are going, they know him. They know what he can do or what he could have done. And they're going, Jesus, if you had have been here, Lazarus would not have died. And so what does he say to each of the sisters at that point? Because they both ask that question. What's his response to each of them? Really, if you kind of look here at the story, mm. looking at them and said, my brother would have died. Come, Lord, See how they loved him. Could not have you opened his eyes? And Jesus once more deeply moved to take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has died for many days. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Mm, mm. See the glory of God. Now, what I really like to be able to see, and if you really read through this and study this story out when you get the opportunity, is that Jesus continues to look at the big picture, mm. the macro, while they're looking at the little picture. They're looking at the fact that Lazarus is dead. He stinks. What, why in the world would I do this? He said, but do you believe? Do you believe? If you really know who I am, and again, all that Jesus is doing, it's not necessarily to maintain or gain the relationship with Mary and Martha and even Lazarus, but really to point to God. It's really similar to what we've been talking about, the story mm. of people looking at, pointing at God and saying God is going to be glorified. And so what happens? Well, they roll away the stone. Mm. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Now, just so you know, dead men are dead. They don't come back to life. Jesus is able to show, yeah, no, actually, I have the power over this. Mm. I have the power over this. He weeps with them, but he's also angry at this point. Mm. But then he says, mm. come out. And he does. So he brings Lazarus back to life. Right. And you get the impression as you read through this, he knows he's going to do that. So why does he cry? Why yeah. does Jesus weep if he knows what he's going to do? That's right. Well, but... All you have to do is go back to what I was saying before. Mm. He loves these people. Mm. And it just shows, too, again, the humanness of Jesus, his compassion. I mean, if you're seeing your friends weeping and crying, if you don't have some sort of compassion mm. or some sort of tears, it's, it's going to, he's going to cry. And so he does. He weeps with those that weep. Mm. He really comes alongside mm. them. And he says, I understand your pain. Mm. But I have an answer. It's an, an entering into their story, really, isn't it? It is. It is. He also was going, running through the gamut of emotions as a man, not only compassion, but also he was angry. Mm. He was angry. It was like, what? You know, and, the, and it, it kind of goes to, there's a, a John Calvin, who's a theologian of the past, that really spoke of the, the vicious anarchy that there is of death. And mm. so looking at the issue, he was angry with the whole notion of death. Mm. So to be able to go through and actually show he had the power over it. Mm. it was the pointing to the future, maybe. 
Well, I was going to say that. This is a classic the end story. Oh. Um, death is the end. Um, it's not the kind of to be continued. And yet Jesus gives some hope in this passage, doesn't he, that it's not a the end story, that no. there is a to be continued. What is that? I, th- I, think that's a, I think that's a great point because I think most of the stories, if you look at what Jesus offers us and what we're able to see, and I'd encourage you to study it through and um, look at it, is that not only in his story, but also in the whole narrative of the, of the Bible, it's really the end with a question mark. It's like, mm. oh, there is something more. Mm. And also that God is not limited by death. That death has no power over God. And that Jesus is able to show this in the life of Lazarus, but also later on in his story would be able to show that he has the power even in himself. That he comes back, and it's not just to show his power, but it's also there's a purpose Mm. behind what he did and actually dying for the sins of the world. Mm. So you've got Jesus entering into their story, enters into our story, a story where seemingly is the end. And he says, no, this doesn't have to be the end. It doesn't have to be the end. It's and the best kind of story, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's great. You know, and it, as far as, you know, you don't, who needs a sequel? <laughs> you know, like, this is, you know, it, it is a phenomenal way to be able to kind of really encapsulate almost all of what we call the gospel message in one, one story of showing, you know, life and death, but yet that death has no power. Mm. It's really the power mm. of God. There's one Christian writer who says of the, the Bible story, At the heart of our faith is the bold claim that in a world full of stories with a world's worth of heroes, villains, comedies, tragedies, twists of fate and surprise endings, there is really only one story. Now, isn't that a slightly arrogant claim, though, to say of all of the stories in the world, your story, my story, all those stories that we see on the big screen, that there really is, at the end of the day, only one story? Oh, you know, it's so interesting. We're having this conversation now, because just yesterday, I had this lady uh, was cutting my hair here in Melbourne, and she asked me that very question. Hmm. She was like, going, well, isn't it kind of arrogant? I love it. Hair, hair stylist. My hair always usually gets really short when we get to talking about the gospel. Because <laughs> she just kind of, they keep kind of continuing on. But she's like, going, but she said, well, but, but I can tell that you're not being arrogant by how you're saying it. But yet you're saying that it is the only story. And I said, well, the thing is, is that it's not based on Russ Matthews' opinion. This is based on what God has told us and what we're able to understand and know. And we're able to look at. And one of my challenges, it's actually, I call it the reviewer's challenge, okay? Because many times as a film reviewer, a lot of people will come up and ask me about a film. Mm. And they'll go, and I'll say, well, here's the film. I saw it. Here's my review of it. And they say, well, you know, I don't like the actor. I don't like the, the director, maybe. Or I don't like the genre, so I didn't go see it. And interestingly enough, I, this one I tend to quote my father because I can hear him in the back of my mind. He said, well, if you don't engage with it, you really can't comment on it. Mm. And see, my challenge to people when it comes to the Bible, or, because I don't have to be arrogant in saying it. I can just say, well, this is the truth. But have you engaged with it? Have you taken the time to look at the most scrutinized book of all time? And really be able to go through and analyze it. Because with the Christian faith, what we can do, I think it's John Dixon who says, we're willing to put our heads on the chopping block of scrutiny. Because we can. We don't have to sit there and go, because it's what I say, it's what God says. And have you taken the time to actually study his story? Hmm. And it is one that will impact your life if you allow it to Hmm. and really investigate it yourself. So Russ, to close, is there an even better story than the 600 Hollywood produce each year? Oh, yeah. I mean, what's amazing about the Bible and about God's story is it's simple enough for anyone to understand, but yet it's complex enough to keep you busy for the rest of your life. Mm. 
Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, is there an even better story? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I look forward to you joining us next time on Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Russ Matthews. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you.